This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. This is God's word. Please be seated. The first church I served on staff was a non-denominational church. So depending on what church you go to, and they have various orders of corporate worship. So there's always an order, but it just depends on what elements are very explicit and what aren't and what they're called and For lack of better terms, some are more liturgical, although that might not be the best way to say it, but I think what we mean to say is maybe something like New City. I mean, we have here a call to worship. It's in the worship folder. That's what we call it. We have a prayer of illumination. We have a time of confession and adoration. We have a benediction at the end. All of these things are guiding us and leading us. Well, the the first church I served at, uh, it wasn't. uh, We didn't do that. Uh, at the beginning at least, and probably a couple years in, uh, the, the senior pastor and I were talking and we were reading some things and we decided that we were going to change the order of service and we were going to add a corporate confession of sin. But we weren't just going to give a time of the pastors leading through and even then a silent time of corporate confession, but we were going to take written prayers from the church fathers and other people also living um, corporate worship leaders, and we were going to incorporate them during our corporate confession of faith. So what I mean is that there would be a prayer written, not every week, but some weeks on the screen, and we would pray it together. Now, one of our mistakes was that in this very non-ordered group of people, we had trained them to not expect things like this, and we did not warn them that we were going to do this. So we didn't even have worship folders. Literally, I came up and I said, uh, please stand for a corporate confession of faith, or a corporate confession of sin. And I remember the look of fright on everyone's face as they stood kind of like, what's happening? And you want me to pray that? That's not my prayer. And at the end, people were aghast at this prayer, that the idea that we could or should pray prayers written by other people to confess our sins. And it was so, uh, I don't know what word to call it. I don't want to over name it, but 
it was, uh, it was enough to where a group of people talked with me and the senior pastor, and over some weeks, we had various meetings, but I remember the first meeting just wanting to really hear and understand after apologizing for not warning anybody, and what we realized is that they said things like, listen, prayer needs to be genuine and authentic, and it needs to come from the heart, and if we pray prayers that are written by other people, then how can it come from our heart? And so I listened and listened until the point where I thought I understood what they were saying. And then I remember saying something like, okay, and repeating back to them like a good active listener and then saying, so are you saying then that if in our prayers we say, Father God, after and before every breath, and we say just and like 2,000 times in a two-minute prayer that somehow that makes it more from my heart than if we read a prayer that's written? Now, it clearly was not my most pastoral moment, <laughs> no doubt about it. But I think I've learned from then, uh, and I keep learning. But good thing is, is the conversation continued on, and we got to a point of understanding. You see, what we as the leaders of the church were trying to do was bring a correction to lead our people into engaging our minds as well in our prayer, not just to pray words that sound uh, very familiar to us. We wanted to engage our minds. What they were most concerned in is they wanted their hearts to be engaged. And of course, what we really wanted, both of us wanted our whole bodies, our whole uh, person, both minds and hearts and wills to be engaged in prayer. But you see, the truth is, is that it doesn't really matter at the end of the day if you have a more uh, extemporaneous style, and what I mean by that is there's no preparation in the prayer, the person just gets up and prays, or if you're reading a prayer, the same danger is there, Jesus would say. And John Stott summarizes it so well when he says, our prayers can become all lips, no head, no heart. So Jesus, here in the Sermon on the Mount, is preaching to those who their prayers had become performances. All lips, all performance, no head, no heart. They were only concerned about the people that were watching them. So what became most important to them is that they were seen praying and esteemed as very godly, as opposed to actually connecting with God. And so for us, we too fall into that where we become all lips, no head, no heart. But my sincere hunch is that in terms of prayer anyway, generally, no one in here would say, I'm a good prayer. In other words, we're all longing to get better at this thing called prayer. And even some of us who would say to another here, I think you are a good prayer. First of all, what does that mean? But we have an idea of what we think that should mean. But we can say it with all sincerity. And there could be a consensus among us that so-and-so is a good prayer. But I bet that person would say, I'm not a good prayer. You see, I think every single one of us hopes one day after years of praying together and in secret, that we would experience what God has for us in communion with him through prayer. And Jesus is gracious enough to give us not a protocol, but a pattern. Not a protocol, but a 
pattern that directs our posture in praying. And if at the end of this, you have more questions, uh, we preached an entire sermon series last summer on the Lord's pattern prayer. So today, what I'm gonna do is give an overview. And as I was thinking about how would I preach on something that we spent weeks on, how would I do that in one sermon, I thought about, I zoomed out, and I thought, well, what is the purpose of prayer? And I thought about Psalm 27, 8, where the psalmist says, your face will I seek. So I started meditating on this idea of seeking God's face, right? Because when we, when we converse with someone, we're not looking at their belly button or their knees or their hands. We're looking at their face. That's our desire is to, to connect with them. Tim Keller says that the face is, quote, the relational gate into a person's heart and mind. And I find that phrase helpful. And so when we seek God's face, We're not trying to find where he is or some space and time where God is actually located, but rather it's to have our hearts enabled by the Holy Spirit, just like we prayed in the corporate prayer of illumination, that we would really see him with the eyes of our heart, that we would be with him, that we would commune with him. And so as I thought about this element of prayer, it came to me, I thought, well, in order to seek the face of God in this pattern, Jesus gives us the face of prayer. Okay, and so I'm just gonna go through this, F-A-C-E. I feel, I was telling everyone this week, this feels a little weird because this really isn't my thing. It's not my style, but I think we'll remember it. And um, don't make fun of me, right? (laughs) So uh, F-A-C-E, the face of prayer. I'm gonna name them and then we're gonna walk through them pretty quickly, okay? So F, is prayer is to the Father. A is prayer is in allegiance to the kingdom of God. C, prayer is comprehensively giving your cares, all of them comprehensively, to the Father. And E is to engage in fighting evil. Okay? The face of prayer. One commentator said that the pattern prayer starts in heaven and it ends in hell. It starts with God It ends with the devil, and everything interesting and important in life is in between. So it's all-encompassing. So the face of prayer, first, prayer is to the Father. Now, referencing uh, God as Father is really important in the Scriptures, especially in the New Testament. Jesus is clearly saying in the Sermon on the Mount that his disciples, that is those who are following him, and why are they following him? They're following him because at some level and then increasingly they understand that Jesus is sent by God the Father. And then we see throughout Matthew and throughout the entire New Testament that those of us who trust in Jesus as the divinely revealed Son of God, we then are adopted into the family of God. So now God becomes our father and we are in the family and in that sense, Jesus becomes our brother. So we have this familial relationship that happens when we call God father. When he really is our father, it it changes the entire dynamic. We're no longer orphans, but now we have a home in the family of God with God as our father. Now, I know that some of us did not have a good example in an earthly father. We had a father that was absent. We may have had a father that was abusive. And no doubt, when we think of the word father, it brings not good images to our mind. 
And then thankfully, gratefully, some of us had an amazing example of an earthly father where when we think of the word father and this familial relationship, we feel good. We're grateful and glad. But the reality is, is that as we are adopted into God's family and we begin to understand how the Bible describes God as father, whether you came from a family where you had a father that did not reflect the fatherhood of God to you, and you know what fatherhood is not like, or you came from a family where you saw a lot of the fatherhood of God reflected, both of us must come wherever, whatever direction we're coming from and be recalibrated by the scriptures and how they would describe God as father. And so we see God the father in the scriptures as always having been father, always. For eternity, by his very nature, he was life-giving. Life was overflowing, and he was loving the Son from eternity. It's always been that way. And so then we aren't born into that family, but as I said, we are reborn into that family, adopted into that family, and now we have this parent-child relationship with the Father. And so now the Father doesn't only offer us forgiveness, he offers us closeness. So when Jesus has a start with praying to the Father, we must and ought to, whether we're praying for 30 seconds, three minutes, or 20 minutes, to start here. Again, this isn't a protocol. It's not like it doesn't count if you don't start here. But this is an invitation of how we lean in in our posture of prayer to understand, to apprehend God as he revealed himself, in this case, as father, and we are his children. So when that happens, and we take time to call this reality to mind, we reflect on his overflowing love and his beauty that is evident in everything around us. We recall the fact that he's never asleep. He's always in tune. He's always present. He's perfectly wise and patient, and he's caring, and he knows everything. And when you, when you start there, you begin to be drawn in to the face of God. And it's not just that I think these things sound good, but these are the things that have been revealed to us in the scriptures so that when we call God Father, these are some of the things that we're saying. So in verse eight, for example, where we read, do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This, for some of us, may deter us from praying. Well, if he already knows, then why do we pray? But it's actually supposed to do the exact opposite. You see, when we come to prayer, the main agenda item is not to inform God of things he doesn't know, but rather it's to invite us in for two reasons. First, God has means by which he accomplishes things, and he accomplishes things through prayer because he's, he's designed it to be that way. But also, it reminds me, and although this analogy breaks down in so many ways, I hope that it gets the spirit of what I'm trying to say, and that is there are times, even as a father a very finite father who is not even close to omnipotent, I'm watching my daughters do something. There was one example where I was watching my oldest daughter try to reach something high on the shelf, and I know she needs me. I know she needs my help. I know at any minute she's either gonna get frustrated and throw something, or what I hoped would happen is that she would stop, find where I was, and ask me to come help her. But I already knew what she needed, so I just watched. And she turned around, and she said, Daddy? And I said, yeah. She said, can you come help me get this? And gladly, I did it. And she smiled and she said, thank you. 
And I know there are times often when I tell my children no, or I tell my children wait, I will say this. Oftentimes I find myself saying no because blah, blah, blah. Then thank you for asking. And the reason I've, I just found myself doing that, and I reflected, why do I feel compelled to do that? Of course, not always. Sometimes I'm like, stop asking and be quiet. But sometimes I say, no, or not yet, and this is why, but thank you for asking. And I realized it was coming out of a place of longing to communicate to them that they're never annoying me, although that's not true. I'm trying to tell them that most of the time I don't want them to be annoying. So I'm saying, trying to reflect God the Father to them, right? So I find myself saying, No, or maybe, or not yet, but thank you for asking, so that I never make them, I try to never make them feel ashamed for asking for something, or for help, or a question. So you see, we have this familial relationship, and that's where we start. Prayer is to the Father, and we bring that to our mind. The second thing is that prayer, Jesus shows us here, uh, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. That prayer is in allegiance to the kingdom. So by allegiance, I just mean uh, complete loyalty, complete commitment. So it's true while we are children and in relation to God as father, we're children. In relation to God as king, we are servants and we're both. Our father in heaven, that means he's reigning. What is he doing? He's on his throne in heaven. And we want his name to be hallowed, that is to be made holy in our lives and then through our lives. So every time we come and pray to God as Father, we then move to allegiance because in that moment, we are recalibrating our heart. We're coming to God and we're saying, my life is for your purposes. My life is in submission to your will. And the beautiful thing about that is that when we do this, it frees us from so many things. I'll just name a couple. The first thing it frees us from is trying to create a purpose for our life. I know that's very important to us, and I'm glad. I think it should be important. But when we pray in allegiance to the kingdom, our purpose is already given to us in the most meaningful sense. You see, our lives, as our hearts are calibrated to God's kingdom purposes, and as we fall more in love with his will, because we see it as beautiful, we understand that wherever God would call us in our lives and through our day, that first we need to realize our purpose has been given to us that we are living out our salvation in line with God's kingdom and his reign on earth. And so that's why we pray that God's kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth through us as it is in heaven right now. So not only do we not have to create our own purpose, but we also, it frees us from building our own kingdoms, right? To protect ourselves. Like some of us, Daily, we are giving our lives consistently to building a life that is most comfortable for us or where we are most in control or we get the most approval from other people or we have the most power over other people so as not to be locked down or to be backed into a corner or to be labeled. And we live our whole lives not only to try to find a purpose, but also to have our own kingdom where we're either always approved of, always in control, always in power, right? And we just, we're freed from that when in prayer we seek to have God, by his spirit, recalibrate our hearts to be in allegiance with his kingdom and not our own. And the beautiful thing is, is that this prayer is so comprehensive that this allegiance part, as all of the rest, speaks directly to our motivations, it speaks directly to our purpose, 
and it speaks directly to all of the questions we're always asking. So when we come to the Father, we then quickly come to allegiance. And we must, again, moment by moment, like I said, rather we, whether we pray for 30 seconds, three minutes, or 20 minutes, if we don't do this, I think that eventually our prayers go from here to here to here to here until at the end of the 20 minutes, we realize that everything has become about us. Everything has come about our own wisdom, our own preferences. We've become really smart in our own eyes as opposed to first reminding ourselves and speaking the truth that we are to give our full allegiance to God's kingdom and not our own. So prayer is to the Father. Prayer is an allegiance to the kingdom. And I think it's wrong on my notes. Can you go to the next one so I can see it? Yes. Prayer is comprehensively casting our cares on the Father. Comprehensively casting our cares on the Father. So if we look at, this, at, the, at the text here, verse eight, do not be like them. Then he says, pray then like this in verse nine. At the beginning in the series last summer, we talked about there are different petitions. First is to God's name, God's will, God's kingdom. And then there's this transition to our daily bread and through us loving our neighbors. So if you look here, verse 11, give us. Verse 12, forgive us. Verse 13, lead us. Verse 13, deliver us. It doesn't get more comprehensive than that, right? Give us, lead us, forgive us. It's comprehensive. It has to do with everything and all of our needs in life. And we need to point out something very important, and that is this word our or us. You see, these aren't like uh, singular pronouns. They're plural. So it's not me, mine, my. It's us, our. So the reason this is important is at least in two ways. The first main way is to show us that this is a prayer not just for our individual needs, although it is that, but also for the community. And Martin Luther had a great insight on this, and he showed how expansive these petitions are. And so in the next probably two minutes, I'm going to be sometimes quoting him, sometimes paraphrasing him. So he says, uh, the petition includes everything that belongs to our entire life in this world. Right? When we say the daily bread, that's another way of saying everything we absolutely need. So the petition, uh, we might ask God to give us food or drink or clothing or house. Or Luther distinguished between house and home, which is very interesting. Uh, we could ask for house. We could ask for home or community. We could ask for a healthy body. We could ask God to cause the grain and the fruits of the field to grow and yield richly to help us manage our household well, to cause our work or craft to flourish for the sake of others and our joy. Whatever it may be to prosper and succeed, to grant us faithful neighbors and good friends. On the other hand, in this petition, we ought to then pray against and for protection from all kinds of harm to our body, to our livelihood, from natural disasters, we might say hurricanes or flood, from illness and plague from war and bloodshed and famine and wicked men and injustice. These are all included in this comprehensive casting of our cares on the Father. For example, um, I, I think I shared this once before. One of my colleagues in this program that I'm in right now, she's from Africa. And she told us the story about the people of this village, she's from Nairobi, so she's from the city, 
but she's aware of these villages where people would pray in the Lord's Prayer for a well, for water. And many of us are really aware of lots of wonderful ministries and organizations that build wells in these types of villages. So she told us the story, and apparently this has also been captured in print in many places, but I had never heard it, that the organization uh, will come in and build the well, and there's the well, because of course, if they didn't have a well, they'd have to walk to a water source with water that was not nearly as clean and was not nearly as resilient against drought and such things. And not to mention they'd have to walk really far and carry it back. So they get a well, it changes the entire dynamic of the, of the village. Well, what would happen sometimes is they would come and there would be a huge celebration. God had answered these prayers, which he had, and there would be a well. And then the people would leave and a few days later, the gang lords and these wicked people would drive in on trucks with machine guns and lock the well with chains and a lock and then extort them with unimaginable demands in order for them to get the water. Their women, their children, their possessions. So I think Luther's right. To pray for the well, absolutely. And then beyond that, to pray for justice and protection that these men might not come in and do what they did. The prayer, you see, when we cast our cares, our cares, is very comprehensive and has a strong social dynamic to it. Some of us are reading this book together and we're learning that when the righteous prosper, the city should rejoice. So then the question we have to ask ourselves is, we are prospering, but is the city rejoicing? And if not, why not? So our prayers must be expansive and comprehensive. And one of the reasons is because all things, all good things come from the Father. And as we pray and engage him, it reminds us that he is the place to go and petition. In alignment with his kingdom, because of our allegiance, and all things come from him, which means our cares must be comprehensive. And so, F, prayers to the Father. A, prayer is an allegiance to the kingdom. C, prayer is comprehensively casting our cares on the Father. And lastly is something that I think that we forget maybe the most. And that is, prayer is against evil. It's embarrassing. I'll go days or a couple of weeks and not pray against evil. I want you to know that that is foolish and arrogant. Because what does that say? That says somehow that I think that I can live and survive and grow in holiness without even the acknowledgement that there are realities and principalities, not just without, but there's a part of me inside of me called my flesh. And it's not my body but it is that which is not in submission to God's will that is warring in conjunction with these things from outside of me. And Jesus here says that we should ask God to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now certainly he doesn't mean, most people think, I think he doesn't mean, that we should somehow be removed from the presence of evil because how is that possible now in this world? We're in the midst of the world but rather that we would overcome evil's temptation and that we should actually ask God to help us do this and not just somehow 
think that we can do it in our own willpower. In the Bible, Jesus himself says these types of things all the time in phrases like watch and pray. Jesus, later on in this gospel of Matthew in the Garden of Gethsemane, chapter 26, tells his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Paul in Galatians chapter 6 says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. So I think as we reflect on our own sin patterns, many of us are aware, I hope, of our proclivities to different types of temptations and maybe even why. And I hope you are. I hope you reflect on what it is about your own story, about your own temperament, about all of these things. And I'll say, in just a second, I'll say even more about that. But I hope you're aware of that. And I hope that you ask God to search you and know you and that you begin to understand yourself more. And in so doing, you begin to understand your proclivity and how evil works with that part of you to lead you, not just to temptation, but then, of course, to acting upon the temptation, to acting out what the Bible calls sin, whether it's in your heart or it's with your hands. So I think the other thing that we sometimes forget is it's not only that evil is prowling around like a roaring lion, although that's very true. And sometimes we see the lion, sometimes we don't. But evil, I think, also is, is in conjunction with our flesh also cultivating sin in different parts of our lives, and we may not know it. Recently, it's a while ago now, um, I, I was reminded in something I read of a story on NPR about cows being led to slaughter and about how factory farming in this uh, regard, in this sector, is getting really good at this. And that in the best factory farms or in the best farms that are slaughtering lots of these cows on a regular basis, day in and day out, they get really good at keeping the cows calm. Apparently, that's a really big deal for lots of reasons. Okay, so what happens is they say, we must keep the cows comfortable, don't surprise them, don't unnerve them, and above all, don't hurt them. Lead them, but try not to prod them. So what happens is they keep everything their entire life very similar. And then when they're going to lead them into the, the chute, which ends with a prod right here between the eyes that kills them, it's very important that not even something as simple as a worker who gets hot doesn't take off their jacket and cast that jacket over a fence because even that could unnerve the cow as they're trying to get it down into the chute. But once they get into the chute, of course, it's kind of like this and it narrows in and it presses in on them and it sort of hems them in, but it does it so slowly that it's not alarming. It's actually feels safe. And then they keep walking and keep walking and everything seems fine and then pow. They're dead. You see, they were cultivating for a long time the calmness and the, the comfort of the cow until they killed it. I think there's a part of us, if we're honest, that we may not be aware of it, but if we reflect, we realize there are certain practices in our life that are acting in very similar ways. That we're being wooed by this comfort 
and this neglect of something that we think is a pet sin maybe or something that's not really that big of a deal, but it's actually wooing our hearts and desires away from righteousness, away from God. And so I think sometimes that happens in certain seasons. So I think we need to keep watch and pray in certain seasons of life. It doesn't matter what season it's in. Every trial has a temptation on the other side of it. So for example, uh, comfort and uh, what we might call blessing or seasons of prosperity, I think we should enjoy those seasons, but we need to be aware in that season that there is a temptation in that season. And we need to make sure we're not being cultivated into woo and we're being wooed to closer to the edge and closer to the edge. We're not paying attention. We're not paying attention. And then boom, we fall off the edge. For some of us, we think of mainly trials being a difficult season of suffering of some type. And absolutely that happens then too. But that season brings its own temptations with it. Uh, Temptation of uh, proclivity to self-determination, self-control, and trying to just tough it out instead of being honest with what's happening with the Lord and with other people. And of course, there are seasons of suffering and prosperity, but also waiting. There are seasons of waiting, and waiting has its own temptation. When you're waiting for the Lord to answer one way or the other, when you're waiting for the Lord to provide, it's just really, really ripe ground for evil, both within and without. So we need to keep watch and pray in certain seasons, but also over our temperaments, right? Some of us are prone to peace and harmony and people-pleasing, and so that comes with its own set of temptations where we realize that evil in our own flesh is leading us to a place to where we're living not for the kingdom of God, but for the praise of others. Or some of us, because of our temperament and personality, we are tempted to overestimate our own wisdom and overestimate our own clarity and view from nowhere, right? We have it on lockdown. We need to be careful there. We need to lean in to these temptations. So we're going to keep watch and pray over our story too and repent forward. What I mean by that is knowing that if there's a business trip coming up and you're prone to overeating or you're prone to sexual temptation or you're prone to whatever it is for you, you know that I'm entering into a dangerous place. I could be wooed. It feels good and comfortable. You need to tell someone. You need to repent forward before you even get there because you know that you can feel the temptation. We all have this ritual, whether it's tearing other people down in our head, overeating, overconsuming of any type of thing. We know some of us, the mall is not good for us. We know that. We need someone with us. Whatever it is for you, we gotta reflect on that and we need to pray against evil. So first, prayers to the Father, prayers in allegiance to the kingdom, prayers comprehensively casting our cares on the Father and prayers against evil. But I wanna leave you here. How do we pray against the reality of evil and be reminded of it and not go into the world either paranoid or scared? How do we do that? Because it's real and it's more real than most of us think about. And it's because of this. In the end, Jesus defeated All evil on the cross. All injustice will be overcome. All sin was paid for. All temptation was overcome. Jesus remained on the cross 
when he could have gotten down, but he chose to stay because his will was in allegiance to the Father. On our behalf, in every way, evil was overcome on the cross. So when you and I go out into the world, we go with evil being defeated. So we don't have to be scared. We don't have to be paranoid. But we absolutely have to be aware of evil. When Jesus says, it is finished on the cross, and then went on to be raised from the dead to prove this statement true, we saw that not even death can overcome Jesus' work. So as his disciples, we go out with a certain confidence and a certain awareness and surely a very clear dependence upon him. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you that you are for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for being such a gracious Lord and teacher that you don't, our prayers are not heard because of the amount of words we say and we don't have to stick to a particular protocol but yet you've given us this pattern so that we can have a certain posture. As we seek the face of the triune God, we see in this pattern, maybe, this movement, this face of prayer. And my prayer is that as it's helped me this week pray, I pray it would help my friends here that our praying would get more simple and yet more thoughtful more thoughtful and yet more heartfelt and that in these prayers we would be changed and we would flourish. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.